The reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, Give good things to those who ask him. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Thanks to the Lord for his precious word. Thank you, Megan. Please do keep that passage open with you. Quite fitting that Megan's reading. Megan's also a, a, has been an RI teacher, is still an RI teacher, quite right, and very grateful to the guys coming along this morning to share with us. Um, am I right in saying, you guys mentioned a stat at the last meeting that said 60% of kids on the Sunshine Coast will be in RE this week, but only 6% will be in church today. So just shows the kind of magnitude of the opportunity for the gospel uh, that RI presents, and it's something that our state government has allowed us a, a wide open door to, to actually do. So please do chat to these guys afterwards. It's great to have them along and a wonderful opportunity for the gospel. Also very grateful to the Lord for answering our prayers for both Jim and uh, for um, uh, Des as well. So thank you for praying. Uh, I know Chrissy's very grateful for answered prayer there and heard some good news this morning that Jim especially is turning a corner and uh, that Des might be transferred to a ward from ICU later today. That's very, very good news. Let's pray, and then we will get into Matthew chapter 7 together. Our Lord and our God, the Bible is no ordinary book. You've told us that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, we pray indeed that your word would do that this morning so that we might reflect more that you are our Father and we are your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, we're coming to the end of the main body of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at this term. And as we do, it can seem a bit like Matthew's panicking, and he's just trying to throw in all the little things he can possibly get of Jesus' sermon before he closes it off. So it seems a little bit like these things are all disconnected, uh, have nothing to do with one another, but I don't think that's fair on Matthew or Jesus, really. There is a logic or add a flow to especially this end part of the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the sermon began with the Beatitudes, those announcements of blessing for those who, who belong to God's kingdom and reflect the character of the kingdom. And from there, Jesus then spends quite a lot of time dealing with kingdom living, especially in terms of our relationship with God's law. So remember, those who belong to God's kingdom will come empty-handed or poor in spirit, 5 verse 3. But they will have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees through faith in the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. That's Jesus. And so life in the kingdom then goes beyond just following rules and becomes a way of reflecting the relationship we have with our Father who is in heaven. That phrase which is repeated so often in Jesus' sermon. And so living out our relationship with the Father, reflecting his likeness, is exactly how Jesus then reframes our relationship to God's law. This becomes the theme of this middle section of the sermon, the main body of the sermon, we might say, which ends in today's reading in 7 verse 12. So Jesus began the section in 5.17 saying, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. Middle of the section he says, 5 verse 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That reflecting that relationship we have with the Father. And then he closes the unit in today's reading, verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And those form sort of bookends around this main body of the sermon, living out our relationship with the Father. And so for this reason, because today's reading fits in here, it can't just be a mishmash of disconnected commands that have nothing to do with each other. This one to not judge and then not cast your pearls before swine and then ask, seek, and knock and then treat others the way you want them to treat you. No, instead we've got to understand Matthew 7, 1 to 12 as fitting under the same general theme of reflecting the relationship we have with the Father in our lives. And perhaps more specifically, as we'll see, Today's reading is all about reflecting that relationship in the relationship we have with one another. So knowing that is going to help us enormously as we come to these verses this morning. Uh, another thing that's going to help us is uh, having a Bible open with us so we can follow and we can apply God's Word to our lives. So you'll notice in the outline, it's a blank page. I didn't have a, a good outline by Thursday when we went to printing, so please feel free to fill in whatever you want in that blank space. But I've got some headings here that might help. And the first one is verse 1 to 5, don't judge. And this is perhaps, I think, Jesus' best-known command, isn't it? People who've got no knowledge of the Bible know that Jesus said, don't judge. Of course, being one of Jesus' best-known commands is probably one of his least understood commands as well. All sorts of people have claimed this command of Jesus as a blanket prohibition of all critical assessment, all voicing of opinions or all censure of any kind. In other words, it's usually used as a sort of nuclear option. It's played as a trump card when I don't want anyone to question me about my choices, whether they are good, bad, or otherwise. 
So I say, Jesus said, don't judge, so don't judge me. But is that what Jesus means? Well, immediately we can be confident that the command is not intended to be used as a license to sin. I mean, Jesus is not going to do that. But it also cannot mean that we're never to exercise wise judgment either. Even in today's passage, in verse 6, we're called to judge who to give what is holy and our pearls. Some discernment that needs to happen there. Further on in verse 15 that we'll look at next week, there's a call to recognize and judge false prophets. And there are plenty of other examples in both the Old and New Testament where God's people are called to exercise wise judgment. However, there is a world of difference between exercising wise judgment and being judgmental. And that's what Jesus is driving at here. And this is what Jesus is forbidding amongst members of his kingdom who have God as their Father in heaven, being judgmental. The person who exercises wise judgment is a humble, meek, and merciful peacemaker. They hunger and thirst after righteousness, and they know they are poor in spirit before a loving Heavenly Father. He or she exercises wise judgment only when they must, because they love the other person and they're concerned for God's glory. They're very careful to whom they voice such judgments, and they recognize that they only have a very limited view and must work hard to avoid their own sin getting in the way of such judgments. By contrast, the person who is judgmental, well, they're absorbed in their own pride and self-righteousness. They attribute the worst possible motives for others' actions or inactions. They hold their own preferences up as principles whereby others must be assessed. They have no control over their tongue, no filter, and they arrogantly express their opinion where it isn't their place to do so and without an accurate knowledge of all the facts. They are never ready to show mercy or even to understand the other person, and at worst they get a kick out of exposing other people's faults. When Jesus says, do not judge, this is what he has in mind. And the reason he says this is because those who are judgmental have quite simply forgotten their relationship with their Father in heaven. Because the person who exercises wise judgment knows that God is the only one who can truly judge, and they too are under his judgment. So that's why Jesus goes on as he does in verse 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, there are two levels that we can understand this warning. And the first is a horizontal level. The person who is known for being arrogant and judgmental shouldn't be surprised when they are treated the same way by others or when they themselves become the subject of harsh and unloving critique um, over morning tea after church or around the water cooler at work. Don't do that, by the way, just saying. <laughs> but there's a greater level, uh, and the greater level is the vertical level. Because the one who is judgmental, perhaps without even realizing it, is actually trying to play God. A judgmental person wants to condemn others. 
But remember, only God is in a position to know someone's heart. He sees their true motives. He knows all the facts. He's not hampered by any sin. So only he can pronounce that sort of judgment on another person. And remember, he's our judge too. The judgmental person has forgotten their relationship with the Father, who they really are and who he really is. And this is essentially uh, what Jesus goes on to illustrate with the famous parable about the speck and the log in verse 3 to 5. And just a note that when Jesus uses the word log, he means the sort of timber beam that would hold up a house roof. It's not an insignificant piece of wood. Now, once upon a time, I was a Boy Scout, and uh, at camp, I managed to get a small wooden splinter in my eye, and we couldn't wash it out, even with the, the best efforts of the first aid badge holders. So I went off to the doctor when I got home, and he laid me down. He got some anesthetic drops for my eye, and took a pair of tweezers, and it was out in no time. But imagine for a moment if as, if as the doctor came towards my numbed eye with his tweezers, I noticed that he had a roof truss sticking out of his left eye. I think that's exactly the kind of reaction Jesus was going for. I would have been out there like a shot, seriously questioning his ability to practice medicine safely. And of course, the point of the massive contrast between the log and the speck is that when we stop to think about it, we know far more about our own faults and failings and heart attitudes and motives than we ever will of another human being. So how dare we then take it upon ourselves to perform such surgical critiques of others? other human beings, and especially of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus says, verse 5, we are to first take the log out of our own eye, and you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I'm sure you can understand it. Once you start taking the logs out of your own eye, you'll be there a long time before you even get to the speck in your brother's eye. And of course, it's got to happen, again, in the context of our relationship with our Father in heaven. It's being poor in spirit enough to pray like the psalmist in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a scary prayer to pray. But it's the one we must pray if we remove the the log out of our eye. It's also praying like Jesus teaches us in chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. I'm going to take the risk of saying something very provocative for a moment because I think we have a wonderful opportunity to apply this command not to be judgmental right now over the, the whole issue of vaccination. How easy is it to condemn someone and write them off because of their choice whether to be vaccinated or not? Sure, we've all got our own views on that. But our Father in heaven, thankfully, doesn't write us off based on our vaccination status. I won't get to the pearly gates and have to do my scan and show a little green tick, (laughs) thankfully. But doesn't our our criticism of others in this area, whatever side of the fence you fall, doesn't it betray a great big dirty beam of pride in our opinions and self-righteousness, which gets in the way of seeing the other person clearly as God would have us see them? This whole area, friends, we've got to keep the gospel central. That's what really matters. 
and not be judgmental. I'm sure you could think of all sorts of other areas where we're all tempted to be judgmental, but that seems particularly relevant at the moment. Well, as we move into verse 6, it might seem like Jesus has departed for another planet entirely. What on earth does he mean when he says, do not give dogs what is holy, do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you? And of course, what does this have to do with not being judgmental or a relationship with the Father? It is a difficult verse to interpret. I'm going to give it my best shot this morning. been lots of attempts at trying to answer it and figure it out. If you've got a compelling idea, uh, come and tell me afterwards. I'd be glad to hear it. But at the very least, I'm sure we can agree that Jesus' advice here is not about pet keeping. Agreed on that? Good. Um, It's clearly figurative speech, and furthermore, dogs and pigs weren't kept as pets in first century Judea anyway. We're not talking cavoodles and teacup piglets here. Dogs and pigs were actually considered unclean animals. So dogs would be out in the street, they would be scavenging off the rubbish that was thrown in the streets. Um, Pigs would only be kept by non-Jews who actually had a use for pork. Uh, That would be completely unclean for godly Jewish society. The structure of the command itself, it follows a very common biblical pattern where the same idea is put forward in in two parallel phrases for the sake of emphasis. So giving to dogs what is holy and throwing pearls before pigs, we can safely assume is pushing at the same idea. There's not much we can say about pearls other than that they were considered valuable, but what is holy is a very loaded phrase, and perhaps this will help us. Anything holy in the Bible is set apart for God's purposes. It belongs to God. So I believe Jesus is saying something like this. Don't take what is valuable and belongs to God and give it to those who will not appreciate it. Well, what is valuable and belongs to our Father in heaven that is actually in our power to give? It's quite simply the good news of the kingdom, the gospel. But we've got to be careful here because we've got to exercise wise judgment, again, without being judgmental. Verse 1 to 5 and verse 6, they can't contradict one another. So I think it doesn't mean we're to decide for ourselves who gets to hear the gospel and who doesn't deserve it. I don't think that's the point at all. It doesn't mean that those who don't respond to our attempts at evangelism the first time, the second time, or the third time, or the 400th time are necessarily written off as dogs or pigs. Even those who might attack us for sharing the gospel don't necessarily fall into one of these categories. Being attacked by the person who doesn't appreciate the gospel is not a big problem for those in the kingdom. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 5. Those who are persecuted for his sake, for the sake of righteousness, are blessed. It's not the worst thing in the world. I'd like to suggest that writing people off from ever responding to the gospel is the same kind of judgmentalism that Jesus condemns in the first verses of the chapter. But instead, if we look at the examples of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, I think we get a good picture of what's happening. The only people who were ever passed over or written off with the good news of the kingdom were those in Israel who had all the building blocks of the kingdom of God, all of God's promises, but who persisted in their rejection of the gospel and their hatred of Jesus. Jesus' disciples were commanded in Matthew 10 to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against such people in Israel and not to waste any more time with such people, move on elsewhere, even to non-Jews, 
so that they would have the opportunity to hear and respond to the good news of God's kingdom. Well, who are these people today? Quite simply, they're people who claim to be Christians, but who through their lives show an utter contempt of Christ and the good news of his kingdom. They persist in sin, they reject the Bible's truth, all while sitting in church on Sunday and going to a small group during the week. Towards these, Jesus says, we are to exercise wise judgment and not to waste our Father's wealth on them. They should not be allowed to claim the name Christian. They should be ejected from the body of Christ, as we see the church doing later in the New Testament. And if not, and they attack, of course, it'll be devastating for the gospel. As I said, there have been many attempts to in, interpret this challenging verse, but this is where I've landed. I encourage you to consider carefully whether you think I'm on the wicked or I've bowled wider the mark there. It's got to be in the context, of, though, of our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. Well, if nothing else, as we move into the, the third section, uh, the first six verses show a serious need for those in relationship with the Father and in relationship with others to have humility in discernment and wisdom in judgment. Because we all know how easy it is to get all this stuff so badly wrong because we're sinful ourselves. What good news then, says Jesus, that we have a relationship with a loving and generous Heavenly Father who is eager to supply what we need to reflect His character in our lives. So verse 7 and 8, Ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one to, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so this is, the, this is the answer to questions like, how are we meant to take the log out of our own eye? Well, ask, and it'll be given to you. And I think it goes beyond just today's reading. It goes right back into the rest of the sermon. How are we meant to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Well, Jesus says, seek and you will find. How are we meant to kill sin and turn the other cheek and give and pray and fast with the right attitudes? Well, knock and the door will be open to you. The illustration Jesus uses here is striking, verse, verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We know from elsewhere in the Gospels that that bread and fish, they were staples of the diet in Galilee. So imagine for a moment that your little toddler comes up to you and asks for a Vegemite sandwich. Would any of us actually give them a sandwich where we'd swapped out the Vegemite for motor oil? Now, I know some might claim there's little difference between Vegemite and motor oil, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> the point is, of course we wouldn't. And that's Jesus' point. We wouldn't try to trick our kids in giving, us, giving them something harmful in the place of something basic, a basic nourishment and necessity that they've asked for. And we're evil. We're sinners. So how much more, then, can we expect a perfect, loving, generous, heavenly Father to give us the good things we ask for? Well, the final verse in this section is sometimes known then as the golden rule. And Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
And of course, verse 12 kind of rounds off this whole discussion about the Christian's relationship with the law and the prophets. The little word so is meant to show that Jesus hasn't started a brand new idea. He's rounding off and summarizing a whole lot of what he's just said. Now, these words wouldn't have been unfamiliar to Jesus' hearers. There's a story from about 20 BC uh, about a Jewish rabbi called Hillel. And a man who was thinking about becoming a Jew, he, he went to another rabbi and asked him to teach him the whole law while he was standing on one leg. And that rabbi sent him away as a, as a joker. The guy goes to Rabbi Hillel, and instead of sending the man away, we're told that Rabbi Hillel stood on one leg and said simply, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law, all the rest is commentary. Now go and learn. Now, it all sounds very similar to what Jesus said and would have been well known, but we've got to notice that Jesus says something entirely different, something entirely more positive and proactive, actually, than Hillel's rather limiting and begrudging rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Of course, whatever you wish others would do to you, taken on its own, Well, that's not meant to be the measure of our behavior. I'm sure you can see that going quite badly wrong. Because to do that would simply make it all a question of my own dignity and my own rights, where our behavior towards others is an attempt to manipulate their behavior towards me. Instead, we're to recognize who we are in relationship to the Father, who will know, uh, we, we will know that there's only then two ways that we can possibly be treated. We can be treated as we deserve, as sinners, Or we can be treated with grace, as we've experienced through Christ. And of course, we want to be treated with grace, don't we? So having known grace through Jesus and wanting to be treated with grace ourselves, the overriding character of our behavior towards others must be a generous and proactive grace that reflects our relationship with our Father in heaven. It's a good summary of everything Jesus has said so far, actually. And if we haven't heard anything else, he's saying, hear this. Treat others with the grace that you want to see and that you've experienced from from God. Well, as Jesus finishes the middle section of the sermon about living rightly, he finishes with these four commands. Do not judge, do not cast your pearls before swine, ask, seek, and knock. Treat others as you would have them treat you. And we've seen that the the way to truly understand these commands is to see them under the umbrella of our relationship with our Father who is in heaven through the righteousness bought for us by Jesus himself. Of course, without this relationship, friends, at the heart of these commands, we completely obliterate their meaning because our default is to make them all about me, isn't it? So don't judge anyone ever because we're all free to make our own choices. Treat some people like dogs or pigs because we don't think they deserve the grace of the gospel. Ask, seek, and knock because you can always expect God to give you whatever you want. And whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. It becomes all about manipulation, self-justification, and preserving my own dignity and rights. By contrast, if we take our blood-bought forever relationship with our Father in heaven as the measure of all our behavior, especially our relationship with others, We will not write anyone off by assuming the role of judge that belongs to our Father alone. We will be very careful not to waste what belongs to our Father. 
We will ask and seek and knock for those things which will help us better reflect our relationship with our Father in heaven. We will treat others as we want them to treat us with generous grace because we know a Father in heaven who has treated us like that. Well, do join us next week as we finish off the Sermon on the Mount with the final verses, but for now, how about we pray? Our Lord and our God, we so easily forget what you have given us in Christ. We so easily forget that you are our Heavenly Father who loves us and knows us. Father, please remind us of that wonderful blessing this morning. And Lord, I pray that the security and comfort and love that we know in you would shape the way we relate to one another. For your glory's sake, in the name of Christ and in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing as we move towards the end of our service. I think our song captures the right kind of attitude that arises from this. Uh, a, A wonderful question. And can it be that I 